And uh, we are going to be continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you could open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. While you're, while you're opening to Matthew 11, I want to ask a, a rhetorical question first, which is, We've been reading about a lot of miracles in the book of Matthew. Uh, that's, that's been one of the recurring themes, particularly when we talked about that, the diptych. Um, I won't uh, recount all that again, but in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we saw this grouping of a three-by-three three set of miracles. And the question that I want to ask you is, what's the point? What's the point of a miracle? Why do we see miracle after miracle uh, demonstrated by Jesus there? And we're going to see the answer to that here in Matthew 11. All right, so turn to Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24. Matthew 11, 20 to 24. Then he, Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the words of Jesus here in this heavy, intense passage. I pray that we would be able to grasp his heart, his heart that is weeping as he, as he pronounces these words over the recalcitrant cities of Galilee. I pray that we here in this room would similarly feel the, the force and the, 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 the pathos behind these words. I pray, God, that you would use me to speak the truth behind these words, that it may enter it deeply into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this whole section of Matthew to review is after the second long speech of Jesus. So we remember there's five long speeches of Jesus in Matthew. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The second one is the Sermon on Commissioning. We spent a lot of time going through both of those. And the section after the Sermon on Commissioning, we see a variety of responses to Jesus. And that's going to go all the way to the the third speech, uh, which is going to be these kingdom parables. And as we look at all of these different responses, we're supposed to ask ourselves, where do we fall in the range of responses that we're going to encounter? We're going to see, and we've already seen some of this, responses like confusion, jealousy, dissatisfaction, apathy, cynicism, rationalizing, opposition, and unbelief. A whole range of responses to Jesus's person, his works. Uh, We saw last time John the Baptist and the response that he had 
we saw Jesus at the end of that say that he and John the Baptist are like children in the marketplace and the people can't be pleased. If they sing a dirge, they don't weep. If they want to, to sing a joyful song, there's not jubilation there. So we, we see this, uh, we've already seen at least three responses so far in this, in this section. Now what Jesus does is he turns to rebuke three cities in Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We'll look at each one. And I want to hopefully bring back to memory, this is an echo of what Jesus told the disciples to do. So hopefully you remember this in Matthew 10, that when a city rejects the disciples, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to, it says in Matthew 10, 14, when you depart from that city, shake the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Okay, so that should sound somewhat in resonance with what we just read. Jesus told the disciples, hey, if they reject you, you shake the dust off your feet. You say it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for that city. And so much of Matthew is this back and forth between Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example. Uh, Sermon on the Mount we saw in Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon uh, chapters 8 through 9, we called that the Sermon on the Move. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Move, where we see Jesus put into action the Sermon on the Mount. And it's very similar here in Matthew 11. He's just told the disciples how they're supposed to treat cities that don't respond to to the gospel preaching, and now Jesus is going to do that to the three cities there. Okay, so what are these three cities? They're a little bit of a triangle. They're all on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they're, they're all closely positioned. They're all within three miles of each other, so very close. So if you look on a map and look at the scale, the legend there, you would see that Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida are all very, very close in proximity. And Hopefully we remember that Capernaum is the hometown of Jesus. Jesus, right. So we saw that earlier in Matthew 4, that Jesus relocates. He moves his home from Nazareth to Capernaum. And you probably, many of you probably remember, just from outside knowledge, that Bethsaida is the home of Andrew, Peter, and Philip. So three of the disciples are all from that one town. So he's now setting his sights on the, his hometown and the hometown of some of his closest disciples. Okay, so I asked before, what's the point of doing a miracle? What's the point of doing an exorcism or healing someone's body or giving food to thousands of people or subduing a storm? Well, verse 20 tells us the answer to this. It gives us the primary reason for doing a miracle. Of course, miracles have multiple purposes, but in Matthew eleven twenty, we see a very important insight here, which is that Jesus says, or it says, Matthew says that he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Why? They did not repent. Did not repent. So the goal of these miracles is to induce repentance. Now, of course, there's proximate benefits in doing a miracle. You get a person who can walk or see again. People have their bellies filled. Someone's in the right mind. There, there's, sec- there's certainly benefits to those. But the main reason, according to Matthew 11:20, 20, that miracles are done 
is not just for those short-term benefits, but it is for the induction of repentance. Okay, very important principle here. So one of the things that, that we, we learn in this is that, and this will be my first point, I have, I, have, uh, I have four points today. My first point is that miracles are primarily intended to produce repentance. Okay, so what, what's a little bit curious or interesting here is when you go back and read, reread the sections that we already saw, there was a lot of fanfare that Jesus caused when he did these miracles. Okay, so for example, in, in, in Matthew 4, 23, it says, he taught in their synagogues, he preached the gospel of the kingdom and healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Um, so I just picture these throngs of people coming to Jesus being healed. In Matthew 8 to 9, we see Peter's mother-in-law being healed. We see Jesus stilling storms, a centurion's son healed, a paralytic healed, Jairus' daughter raised to life, the bleeding woman healed, the blind and a mute man healed. Lots and lots of, of amazing miracles. I, I picture this constellation of stars in the sky, these constellation of miracles that shine bright as Jesus is, is doing all of these miracles within this region of Galilee here. But what we learn here and what this very first couple of verses tells us is that miracles that don't lead to repentance lead to a woe, okay? So did you see that? And right after that in verse 21, he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. So there can be some, some appreciation of a miracle. There can be this like, wow, God, you're amazing. You've done this great work here. But if it doesn't lead to a, a, a repentance, a biblical repentance, it becomes a woe. Okay, this is, this is a heavy thought because I think for most of us, we have seen God work in our lives in a variety of ways. And the ultimate reason, the ultimate primary reason that God works miracles in our lives, that does these, these acts in, in our lives is to, is to lead us to repentance, is to, to sustain us in repentance, and if it doesn't become repentance, it becomes a woe. That is a, a scary thought. A work of God without repentance endangers a person's life. Uh, it's very interesting. There's a writer, his name is Douglas Hare, who points out something that's fairly obvious once you see it. Uh, in, in Greek and in English, when Jesus describes this, it says, uh, or when Matthew describes it, it says, where most of his mighty works had been done. And then later on in 21, it says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Notice how Jesus, how he says that. He doesn't say, and this is how probably most of us would have said it, the, the mighty works which I did in your various cities. He doesn't say that, right? Isn't that interesting? It's, I find it fascinating, the humility of Jesus, even in this, these statements here. The reason for that is that Jesus is not going out there to primarily get people to fall at his feet and kiss his feet and say amazing things about him. They are intended to be manifestations of God's will to save his people and to bring about repentance, not to somehow lead to accolades for Jesus, although that would certainly be warranted. I find that amazing. That Jesus is not here looking for attention, not saying that, hey, you should, have, uh, you should have fallen on my feet, but saying, hey, you missed getting right with God. 
in, in the miracles that happened in your place. And he very, very much understates that, doesn't he? And again, that blows me away to think about doing resurrections and healing the blind and stilling storms and not even to mention his role in, in all of that. Okay, so, so we, we want to right away now focus this, this point that all these miracles that we've seen in 8 to 9 are, are supposed to lead us to repentance. They were supposed to lead the people to repentance. Okay, my second point is that repentance should not be confused with enthusiasm. Repentance should not be confused with enthusiasm. Okay, so I'll read a couple of examples of this from earlier in Matthew. So right after the paralytic was healed, we know the story of where they cut a hole in the wall and they drop the paralytic and and Jesus heals this paralytic. It says, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Okay, so they're filled with awe and they're, they're praising God, they're worshiping God. But apparently that is not the same as repentance. Just a few verses later, after healing the mute man, it says, the crowd was amazed and they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. That's Matthew 9, 33. So they had amazement. They had wonder. They had this sense of like, whoa, Jesus is like this incredible person. But they didn't have repentance. They lacked repentance, even though they had some measure of worship, amazement, awe. I, I like the way that Matthew Henry puts it. He says, Jesus does not say because they believe not for some kind of faith many of them had that Christ was a teacher from God, but because they repented not. Their faith did not prevail to the transforming of their hearts and the reforming of their lives. Okay, so they're worshiping God, they're praising God, they're amazed at Jesus, they're awestruck by his power, but they haven't repented. They haven't repented. The, the honeymoon period is over. We don't know exactly how much time has elapsed here. It's, Matthew doesn't give a lot of chronologic marking to, to know exactly how much time has elapsed. But we can safely say that the honeymoon is over. People have demonstrated that they don't really have a durable commitment to Jesus, despite the fact that they're amazed and in awe at his, his power. Somehow, they've gotten numb. They've, they've gotten unresponsive. They've seen a lot of miracles. They've seen a lot happen there, but they're insensible. They're, they're apathetic. They're not really uh, moved in the way that Jesus wants them to be moved. Okay, so what, what, do, we, what do we do with this? How do, we, how do we think about this, and how do we avoid this, this trap? There's a, there's a really great uh, book. I'm going to recommend a couple books, um, but there's a book that is called Repentance by John Roberts who, who gives several myths of repentance. And, and three of the myths I'm going to quickly walk through here. The first myth is that emotion equals repentance. Emotion equals repentance. And, and it's very easy to, to, to think that. It's very easy when you have this surge of emotion in your heart to think like, I'm repentant and I'm sorry. Um, when, I was, when I was young in the 80s, there was a, I won't say his name, but there was a famous TV preacher that I had seen many, many times. And it came out that he was, he was uh, sleeping with prostitutes. 
and he was he showed up on television he was just weeping and weeping and he had been exposed and he was crying and crying and everyone said see see he's a new new person and you know everything's gonna be different well a little while later he was caught in the same sin again emotion equals repentance is a common myth that we want to be careful about but this might this might confuse you a little bit neither is Reformation is change equal to repentance either. So emotion, these are all myths, emotion does not equal repentance, nor does change equal repentance. It's very easy to, to say, oh, this person has, has changed in some way, and, and therefore they've repented. Another myth, I won't go through all the myths here, but another myth is that repentance can be selective. Uh, so, oh yeah, this person, they repented of such and such uh, area in their, in their life. But meanwhile, there's these other areas in their life that remain untouched. A biblical repentance is thorough. It's wide. It is much more broad than we generally think about. So, so what is true repentance then? What, what does it look like? And again, we don't have time to go through this in exhaustive detail, but repentance is not merely dealing with the fruits of sin, but the very roots. And this is, this is something that is, is often missed where we, it's very easy to touch on the outward, the manifestations of repentance. But typically when you touch on the, on the outward manifestations, it, your life becomes this kind of roller coaster where you do well for a little while and then it comes back again and then this up and down, up and down cycle. Very common you see in the church today. <clears throat> Repentance is also not what we do for ourselves, but it's something that we do for God. I, I am totally convinced of this, that like one of the main reasons that people just don't get repentance is that they see it primarily as something they're doing for themselves, uh, unto themselves, and not as an act of consecration to God. When you really understand repentance as the giving of your life to a new owner, to a new set of, of, uh, of principles and, and a new will that is beyond your will, it, it really is a completely different frame of mind. I, I often look at the world and I think like, wow, do we really believe that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price? If you really believe that, if you really believe that you were bought with a price, repentance takes on a very different character. Because in your mind, you walk around thinking, this isn't my laptop. This isn't my hands. These aren't my organs. This belongs to someone else. Another aspect of true repentance is that it's not merely turning away from sin, but it's positively turning toward God. One, one verse that I love about repentance is Acts 3.19, where it says, Repent then and turn to God, this is Peter speaking, so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the face of the Lord. Most translations say from the presence of the Lord, but it's prosopu there, it's face in the literal Greek. So repent there, uh, repent then, and what? Turn to God. Okay, the, there's, there's a sense in which, and I, again, I think this is very common, that people, they repent of a sin, and they live almost in this vacuum of like, okay, I'm not supposed to sin, I'm not supposed to sin. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work because something will fill that void, whether it's the previous sins or some other interest. 
And here Peter says, so clearly repent and turn to God. It's a coordinate action. As we turn away from sin to God, then we can find the times of refreshing. And I, I, I truly believe that this is something that is so lacking. You know, so many, so often I, I, get, um, I get people to say, oh, you got to come and, and speak at our church for the youth. The youth are straying. The youth are straying. And it's, oh, the youth are into sports and da-da-da-da-da. And, um, and the times that I do go to a setting like that, I go and I, I, I'll often stay with a deacon or someone who's, who's relatively senior in the church, and I'll stay there. And I often feel like, I tell this to Laura a lot, I often feel like, like uh, I'm, I'm a beggar because it's this big, fancy house, and people live in this luxury, and I'm like, wow. Um, and the adults have, have a lot of interest in business and in, and in worldly success. And it, pretty, it becomes pretty obvious, like a day or two in, the problem isn't the youth, or maybe there are problems there, or the problem is the older generation is way more captivated with the things of the world, and thus there's no positive vision to draw the youth in for. And so our, if our notion of repentance is, hey, just don't sin, just don't turn away from specific sins, but then do whatever you want, that's not repentance. And we have to... We have to recapture a, a repentance that is turning toward the kingdom, that is turning toward conquering and being great and taking the world captive for the king. Another principle of repentance is that it's both sudden and ongoing. And this, this sounds a little bit paradoxical. Repentance is both sudden and ongoing. Because you know some people emphasize this like cataclysmic, like you have this big this big event, and that's, that's good, but it's also ongoing. I'm going I'm to illustrate both sides of this. This is a story from a, a professor, his name is Professor Drummond, who describes a person uh, who said that they want to become a Christian. And so, I'll just read you this dialogue here. Well, my friend, what's the trouble? He doesn't like to tell. He's greatly agitated. Finally, he says, the fact is I have overdrawn my account. Okay, that's, an, uh, that's a polite way of saying that he's been stealing. Did you take your employer's money? Yes. How much? I don't know. I never kept account of it. Well, he goes on to figure out, you have an idea. You stole $1,500 last year. I'm afraid it is that much. Now look here, sir. I don't believe in a sudden work. Don't steal more than $1,000 this next year. Then the next year, not more than 500, and in the course of the next few years, you'll see that you won't steal any. If your employer catches you, tell him you're being converted, and you will get by, and you will get, he will get that you won't steal eventually. Okay? So, how does that sound to you? Just gradually decrease the amount of, of theft that's happening. But this is, a, this is actually a common idea, and you hear this a lot in, in the church. Like, yeah, it's just this gradual work, and should be, should be very, you know, slow and steady, and just keep, keep at it. Of course, that's all a farce. The Bible says, let the one who steals, let him steal no more. It's, it's supposed to be an about face. Uh, the, oh, did I leave my book there? Uh, oh, thank you, that's the one. Yeah, so um, I was, um, thanks, Jeremy. This was, I think this was about 20 or 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. I was at home, and my 
my mom uh, was was the, I, my, me and my mom were at home and we were we were just <clears throat> eating a lunch and doing as normal family activities. Well, next thing I know, she's double over in pain, really bad pain. And uh, I was, I think I was probably in college at the time. So yeah, it's probably about 30 years ago. And, and so I call the ambulance, I don't know what to do. And they whisk her off and lo and behold, she has gallstones. And so they had to do a, uh, a removal surgically of her, of her gallbladder. Well, as it turns out, the meal that we'd had, this was, this, right, this was in college, this was before I was eating the way I do now. Our meal was, uh, our meal was hot dogs. Uh, uh, so uh, to this day, my mom says she has never eaten a hot dog, not one hot dog, since that event because she has such an association of this intense pain with the hot dog. And the... I'll read you a quote from, this is a book that I, I recommend this book often. It's, a, it's, a book, it's an old book. It's from the 1600s. It's, it's called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. I, I love it. I love the, the way it's written, especially if you like beautiful English. You would really enjoy this book. But listen, listen to this, the way he puts it. He says, a true penitent is a sin loather. If a man loathe that which make his stomach sick, much more will he loathe that which make his conscience sick. It is more to loathe sin than to leave it. One may leave sin for fear, as in a storm the plate and jewels are cast overboard. But the nauseating and loathing of sin argues a, de a detestation of it. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. So I like that. We, we don't, you know, you've probably had experiences where you've had a bad meal, eating something, and you're just like, ah, I'm not going to go back to that again. Just like my mom doesn't want to go back to her hot dog. I'll read that line again. If a man loathe that which makes his stomach sick, much more will he loathe that which makes his conscience sick. It's a very profound idea, isn't it? And this is, this is something that we need to recapture, the, the power and the importance of a sudden revolt of sin that causes us to renounce sin in a very dramatic way. However, repentance is also ongoing. It is sudden, but it is ongoing as well. And in fact, uh, the, the very first word, it's amazing, the very first word in Jesus' public teaching, anyone know what it is? Re yeah, repent. Uh, metanoite in, in Greek, and th that's a, a present tense imperative, which those of you who know, know verbal aspect means a continuous aspect there. By the way, that's also the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth as well. Both John the Baptist and Jesus, the first word in their public ministry, the word is repent, both in English and in Greek. Um, another quote from this book, which I love, I, I think about this quote all the time. <clears throat> this is... Uh, Thomas Watson, who says, there is no rowing to paradise except upon the stream of repenting tears. I love that. There is no rowing to paradise except upon the stream of repenting tears. The whole Lord's Prayer, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, is part of that ongoing repentance. Okay, point number three. Jesus does not curse 
these cities, he brings a warning. Okay, you'll see why this is a big deal. Jesus does not curse these, the cities. He brings a warning. Okay, so if I were to ask you what the opposite of the word bless is, what is the opposite of bless? Curse, right? We all know that. And the Bible uses this language as well. In Rome, you don't have to turn to this, but in Romans 12, 14, Paul says, bless and do not curse. Those are opposites, right? Bless, don't curse. Uh, Jesus says something similar in Luke 6, bless those who curse you. Okay, so that's the opposite, curse and bless. Bless means to, to, to speak a word of, uh, a positive word, uh, hopefully supernaturally endowed. Curse is to speak a negative word. But it's very interesting, and this never struck me, actually, until I was preparing for this message. So in Luke 6, we have a, we won't turn to this either, but this is a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus gives a bunch of blessings, but then also woes on the other side. So he says, blessed are the poor, woe to those who are rich. Blessed are those who are full, uh, sorry, blessed are those who are hungry, woe to those who are full. So for, in Jesus's lexicon, the way that he structures it is the opposite of blessing is not curse, but it's woe. It's very interesting. Okay? This, this, I don't know why I never put this together, but, but it, it really hit me as I was preparing for this. So even though bless and curse are true opposites, when Jesus puts it together, he uses a very different word, woe, as his contrast to bless. Okay, so I, I want to I kind of go deeper on this, but before I do, I want to remind us of something you probably learned in high school, the word onomatopoeia. It's a fun word to say. So onomatopoeia, hopefully you remember what that is, is where a word sounds like what it represents. Okay, so the word clap kind of sounds like a clap or buzz, right? Buzz sounds like, you know, or hiss uh, would be another one or thump or honk or beep. There's all these words that we have in English where the word sounds like what it is, is representing. Sizzle, it's another, another good one. So as it turns out, the word, you're gonna, you're gonna all learn a Greek word today if you don't already know it. The word for woe is also onomatopoeia. The word is ouai. All right, you can say that, ouai, ouai, right? Doesn't that sound like a good word for woe? Like, Ooh, like to me, like wow, that's those are those are like those are sounds I want to make when I feel whoa, like ooh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, exactly. You, you feel that's a good Middle Eastern gesture there. Um, the um, in in um, in the in BDAG and the standard Greek lexicon, it says an interjection denoting pain or displeasure, a state of intense hardship or distress. And a lot of writers um, have pointed out that in our, in our thinking, because we're, we're probably too, too naturally harsh and view God in a, in a harsh way, when we hear the word woe, we think that Jesus is like cursing people as he's making these statements. But it's not actually that. Uh, this is from an old commentator, Adam Clark, who says it well. It would be better to translate the word uai as alas for thee rather than woe to thee. The former is an exclamation of pity, the latter a denunciation of wrath. Okay, I think that's a really, really interesting point there. Um, another writer says, 
Preachers and teachers must be careful to make the important distinction between the loving warning of judgment, which can wholesomely startle human beings, and the cold-hearted prediction of judgment, which can appear to close the door in people's faces. It's very, very, uh, very profound thought there. Uh, so Jesus here is using woe, not cursing, to, to startle people out of this state that they're in. And he's not saying that every last person in those cities is damned. No way. And in fact, later on in the book of Acts, we see that places like Tyre and other cities, there's actually churches in, in those places. And so there were communities there. However, there is a, a larger point here, which is Jesus is trying to, while not curse people or make them feel like the door is shut, to startle them into a state of like, whoa, what path are we actually on here? And it's a good reminder for us to be, to be more thoughtful about evil and where evil ultimately terminates. You know, I, I, this has been a, a theme for me in the last year or so that I've, I've not seen or appreciated as much as I have in the last year about how, how much the day of judgment is actually good news. It's part of the gospel. Uh, the overthrow of evil and the destruction of evil is really, really good news. I think a lot of us are probably feeling this right now. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I wake up in the morning and I'm checking the news hoping that there's going to be some news of Putin being overthrown or some coup. And I'm like, please let there be some, something that happened. I'm rooting for the overthrow of evil. I'm not saying that he would be killed or anything like that, but I, I would hope that somehow he would be overthrown. And I'm going to read you here a, a quote that I love from, this is from Stanley Hauerwas. He says, the gospel is judgment because otherwise it would not be good news. Only through judgment are we forced to discover forms of life that can free us from our enchantment with sin and death. Powerful idea. I'll read it again. The gospel is judgment because otherwise it would not be good news. Only through judgment are we forced to discover forms of life that can free us from our enchantment with sin and death. My fourth and final point is that Jesus here rebukes supposed followers of God, not pagans. Okay, so this is a, a, an interesting thought. Did you know there's not one sermon that we have of Jesus, not one place where he denounces pagans? Not one place. Um, he is much more often, in fact, never denouncing pagans, and he's always denouncing the people who call themselves followers of God. We, we see this in John the Baptist as well. John the Baptist, when we first see him, he's preaching judgment to, to Jews, to people who, who are followers of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And Jesus' continual caution is his preaching of judgment is directed at those who call themselves followers of God. This should be very sobering to all of us. The, the third city, so the first two cities that he denounces, Bethsaida and Chorazin, are not his home city. The third city, I mentioned Capernaum, is where he's from. There's no other city, there's no other place that knew Jesus' power like Capernaum did. And Nazareth, even, I think he was not probably doing as many miracles. He was more under the radar, so to speak. But in Capernaum, I mean, he's out in all of his glory, all of his ministry capacity. And it says here, 
And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done to you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Okay, so this, this concept of, of um, Capernaum being exalted to heaven, there's some speculation on this. We have no idea if this is true or not. But the speculation is that Capernaum had a slogan, a little bit like how America has a slogan, In God We Trust that Capernaum's slogan was lifted up to heaven or exalted to heaven, that they were, they thought very highly of themselves. But what Jesus says is that they will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Okay, a couple, couple of thoughts here. First is, and this is a, a total side note, but I'll just throw it out there for those who are more into apologetics. Uh, some of you have heard the term middle knowledge. Um, anybody heard of middle knowledge? H- handful of you. So this is William Lane Craig is the one who's popularized this. Um, it's, it's been around long before him. But middle knowledge is this concept of God not knowing just what happens, but what would have happened to you if you were in alternate scenarios. And middle knowledge is a construct, especially that people who don't agree with Calvinism, like William Lane Craig, have posited. If you want to talk more about with this me afterward, I'm glad to do that. Um, and middle knowledge is a way to refute some concepts that, again, are especially powerful in Calvinism. But, but here you can see a, a statement, I think, of pretty clearly middle knowledge, where Jesus is saying, like, hey, if you, Capernaum, or sorry, if, if, if Sodom had experienced what you are experiencing Capernaum, then Sodom would have repented. So this is actually a a really great example of middle knowledge here. I'll leave it at that. We can talk about it later if you're interested. Um, More more interestingly is that if you look this up, this reference up, and if you look the Greek up, you will find it is almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 14. And we won't look, look at this, but it's verses 13 to 15. In Isaiah 14, it is a denunciation of Babylon. Okay, so Babylon is in view in Isaiah 14. And I think most of us know that Babylon is the arch enemy of Israel, right? They're the ones that destroy Jerusalem. They, they destroy the temple. They take the ark. I mean, they just they completely level the city. And here, when Jesus says, that they will be brought down to Hades. This language is right from Isaiah 14 about Babylon. So the very city that Jesus was prominent in has now become, in Jesus's sermon here, in the place of Babylon, the destroyer of the people of God. So what is the underlying principle in all this? There's, there's a very powerful underlying principle, which I... I still remember learning this so well when I was, I remember I was 20 years old when I learned this and it stuck with me. The principle is that the more light you have, the more revelation you have, the more strict, the more harsh will be your judgment. Okay, so this, this, is, this is said in many different ways and places, uh, but the most famous is in Luke 12, 48, Jesus says, for everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. Okay, so... You know, so often you'll hear this discussion and people will, will say, oh, that evil person, Hitler, or these, you know, like they'll put some example of some murderer or some serial killer or something like that. And they're thinking primarily about evil in terms of 
heinous outcomes, heinous, and no doubt these are all very heinous outcomes, some serial killer who's killed dozens of people, all terrible acts there. But it's not actually the way that the Bible thinks about weighing the, the depths of judgment. The Bible weighs judgment much more in the frame of how much light did you have to the contrary. And I, and I have to say, having done a tiny bit, not a lot, but a tiny bit of reading about the lives of some of these serial killers and others, they had horrific lives. I mean, they were abused in terrible ways. They had very little exposure to truth. And their derangement came from highly, highly dysfunctional backgrounds and upbringings. And so, you know, for all of us in here who most of us had very good upbringings, to say like, you horrible people, um, it's, it's not really a very fair assessment. I'm not trying to minimize the, the heinousness of those acts, but what if we were in, the, in that position? Would we be any different? What is a, a far more sober and biblical assessment is to say that if you know a lot, if you've been raised in a Christian home, if you know the Bible, if you've had all this, these great uh, advantages there, when you commit an act of, of evil, it can be way worse than this person who's some deranged criminal there because in God's economy, you're sinning against the light that you have been given, which is much more substantial uh, than, than the other individual. And so here, Capernaum, the city that Jesus dwelt in, is pictured as having a worse judgment than Sodom. And Sodom is an archetype of an evil city, of course, in the Old Testament. Okay, so I'll read you a quote from an individual who puts this in different words. I like the way he describes it. This is Ian Campbell who says, In a nuclear war or accident, the damage depends on the level of radiation to which people are exposed. In the judgment of God, the damnation depends on the level of privilege and revelation to which people are exposed. The greater our knowledge of gospel truth, the more serious our lack of submission to Christ becomes. Okay, so, so I have no doubt, I have zero doubt that in the worst parts of hell, it will be, it will be supposed Christians, supposed followers of Jesus that had lots of biblical teaching and insight, but sinned against that to their own damnation. It will not be the, the serial killer or the suicide bomber or somebody like that who had very little exposure. This is a very deep and important principle here. Uh, I, I want us to, 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 to think about this because, you know, again, I, I think I can say safely that the vast majority of us in this room, if not all of us, have had a lot of light shed abroad in our hearts through, through books, through teaching, through college, through good, good parents, through a lot of advantages there. We ought to contemplate our sin as being really heinous and terrible in, in that light. Uh, dare I say this, and I, I, I say this in a woe sense, not in a curse sense, that it will be worse for Boston, Los Angeles, Lancaster, Hutchinson, Harrisonburg, than it will be for New Delhi, Jakarta, or Riyadh on the Day of Judgment. I believe that. I know that, that sounds a little bit harsh to say because, again, it's very easy to, to say, look at, look at those, those uh, crazy people in Riyadh, or look at all those pagans in New Delhi worshiping idols, or 
pick your city, pick your, pick your area. But I think it, it would be fitting to simply restate that in today's language as such. I want us to conclude here as we, as we think about this warning, as we think about Jesus's action here, to just ask ourselves here, how is it with us? Have we become calloused? Have we become insensate to the works of God, to the miracles of God? Have we, have we gotten to the point where it is, it is as it was for Capernaum, where, hey, this is Jesus, we're used to him, we're used to this person who does amazing things, but yet our lives are basically untouched and basically remaining as they are. Are we those who are the select few who have truly repented and who have truly given our lives to God in brokenness and in submission? Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us to be sober and to truly understand what repentance is, not a show of emotion, not merely changing outward facets of our life, but loathing sin, despising its fruit, despising its roots, and giving ourselves in whole consecration to you. The entire package of what we've seen in Matthew so far, uh, whether it is aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the giving, the, the loving, the evangelism, the, the, the fasting, the, the life of mercy, and not, uh, not one of self-interest, Whatever it is, I pray that we would be cut to the heart at that and sustain ourselves by going afresh to you in ongoing and sudden repentance. I pray that we would loathe sin more than we loathe anything on this earth that brings injury to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to realize that indeed it will be worse for the cities that supposedly have Christianity in them than it will be for the pagan cities and may we be agents of truth who cling to, cling to Jesus, cling to his ways, cling to his humility and his sweetness of life, that, me, that we may, um, may walk in, in ways that please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.